Mark chapter 9, verses 42 to 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will it be made salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Wouldn't it be great if as soon as I hand my life over to Jesus, all the temptations just came to an end? Uh, that's what that's would be really good, but that's not at all what happens, is it? And some people get really discouraged because they think that that's the way it's supposed to be. Um, that they, they feel that, you know, once I commit to Jesus, all of the temptations are going to just go. Or maybe they might have the attitude, they might be thinking, well, when I get baptised, that's when it's going to happen and I'm not going to have all these temptations that I'm currently facing. Or maybe when it's like, when I get to this next stage of life, that's when my temptations are going to be gone. But the truth of the matter is temptations continue. They just go on and gone. Some of the old temptations that we began with are temptations that just continue. Then we might get some new ones. And often the temptation increases as we get more serious about following Jesus. Now, why is that? Well, nothing makes Jesus look worse than when one of his disciples is caught out in some terrible sin. And so Satan actually increases temptations. Now, Satan doesn't need to target those who are his. He targets those who belong to God. We see this in the life of Jesus. As soon as Jesus was baptised and began his life of ministry, that's when Satan came in hard with the temptations. And we're all tempted by very different things. Um, I'm tempted by very different things to what Satan threw at Jesus. And you'll be tempted with very different things to what Satan throws at me. I don't think I've ever been tempted to turn stones into bread. And I'm pretty sure I've never been tempted to, to leap from a tall building so that the angels can catch me before I get smashed to pieces on the stones below. You see, those are not temptations for me. But for the Son of God, those were very real temptations. And sometimes we Christians, we tend to look down on other Christians and we think, oh, you're weak. Because why, why can't you resist that temptation? That's not hard to resist. Well, that's because it's not your temptation. And the temptation that I find easy to resist and the temptation that you find easy to resist might be very different things. And for some people, what we find easy to resist might be a very real weakness for them. And some sins become so much of a temptation, they seem so irresistible, we begin to accept them as part of who we are. It, it begins to define who we are. And sometimes it, it actually comes to the point 
where I no longer try to resist that sin anymore and it becomes a habit. Or maybe we consciously adopt that sin as, as part of our lifestyle. Sometimes it'll be a secret sin, something that we keep hidden away, something that nobody else knows about us. But then other times we might take the attitude, I'll blow it. I don't care what anybody thinks of me anymore. Judge me if you like. This is who I am. But you know what? The more I read the scriptures, the more I understand that living the Christian life is not about me being afraid of being judged by others. You see, you're not my judge and I'm not your judge. Living as disciples of Jesus is about loving Jesus so much that I want to honour Jesus with every fibre of my being. I'm going to say that again, and then I'm going to ask you if you agree with that statement. Living as a disciple of Jesus is about loving Jesus so much that I want to honour him with every fibre of my being. Do you agree with that statement? Seeing a few nods. Good, good. Because if we can't agree on that statement, then we're not going to have much of a basis for continuing the discussion on living a transformed life for Jesus. You see, when we give our lives totally over to Jesus to become his disciples, something significant, something profound changes. It's something the people of the world cannot understand. It's something that an academic study of religion cannot ever grasp the experience of. It's something so life-changing and it's so foreign to contemporary culture that, that Jesus described it as being born again. This is what changes. At one time, we belonged to the world and we fitted right on in. Some of us might have always felt a little bit on the outside, little bits of misfits. We don't quite fit into the world, but for most intents and purposes, we fitted right on into the world. We were living for ourselves. Maybe we're living to please ourselves. Maybe we were even living to please others. But now we realise that is the least important for us because now we live for Jesus. Jesus has shifted us from darkness into light. We move from death to life. We've put to death the old person and God raises up somebody completely new. Everything that once used to seem really important to us, well, that's just not so important anymore. And stuff that we never used to care about, well, that could, could become our new life's mission. Everything changes. The topic for today is living the transformed life of a disciple of Jesus. Our transformation is integral to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. If my life isn't being transformed to become more like Jesus and to become more in line with, with um, the law of God, with God's righteousness. If my life isn't being transformed in that way, there is something seriously, seriously wrong with my life as a disciple of Jesus. 
If you're anything like me, your heart's desire is to be a whole lot holier than what you are. You mightn't be achieving it so well, because I know I'm not achieving it so well sometimes. But our heart's desire is to be a whole lot holier than what we are. You see, we do want to live for Jesus. I don't want to be sinning. Do you? Of course not. Of course not. And at times of temptation, sometimes we, we do manage to stand our ground. But a lot of the time we don't. I know I don't. I've fallen many times. I've fallen to temptation. Terrible temptations. Many times. And I just wish that I was stronger. And I pray for strength. Lord, increase my willpower. Give me a greater resolve. And yet I still fail. And so I thank the Lord for his endless mercy and grace. But does failure mean capitulation? Does failure mean we give up? Well, let me tell you, for, for the disciple of Jesus, never, never. Sometimes resisting of temptation requires some radical adjustments in our lives. A couple of weeks ago, we, we touched on Jesus' use of hyperbole. Uh, now, do you remember what hyperbole is? Remember, that was that really big word, and we had a bit of a discussion on it. Well, I'm going to give you the same explanation as what I gave a couple of weeks ago, because I know some of you weren't here then, some of you were probably asleep then, and some of you have probably just forgotten. Hyperbole is an over-the-top statement that is given to make a point. Right? It's not usually meant to be taken literally. So, for instance, we might say, that bag weighs a tonne. Well, that port might be very heavy, but no, it doesn't weigh a tonne. Or we might say, yesterday was the worst day ever, particularly if you're a Labor supporter. Well, no, it, it might have been a very bad day for you, but it's not the worst day ever. Or you might say, I cannot live without him. Well, actually, yes, you can. You know, you might miss him terribly when he goes away for three or four days, but that doesn't mean that you're going to die. Right? That's just a few examples of everyday use of hyperbole. But when Jesus uses hyperbole, it's generally a little bit different. Yes, it is an over-the-top statement given to make a point. And no, it's not usually meant to be taken literally. But when Jesus uses hyperbole, at least in all the examples that I can think of, and if you can think of any where this isn't so, you let me know because um, I'd like to know. When Jesus uses hyperbole, it is actually true. All right? So in today's reading, Jesus said, if your hand causes you to sin... Cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two hands and to go into hell to the unquenchable fire. And then he said but basically the same thing about our foot and the same thing about our eye. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Now that's hyperbole. It's a shocking statement. It's an over-the-top statement. 
It's not meant to be taken literally. Do you know what? It is actually true. If my hand is that thing which is causing me to sin, and if by me sinning I'm going to go to hell, well, it, it actually is better for me to cut off my hand and to, and to live a few decades as a cripple than to keep both my hands and be thrown into hell for all eternity. It is actually true. But it's hyperbole. Jesus isn't telling me to go and cut off my hands. What he's telling me is to cut off whatever it is that causes me to sin. Sin is that serious. Sin has eternal consequences. What's the solution to that? Cut off the source of temptation. So, for example, internet pornography has become one of the greatest temptations and one of the greatest scourges of our society, even for Christians. Now, I was going to say for Christian men, uh, but apparently even women are tempted by this too. I don't know anything about those temptations for women, but I know we men are tempted by these sorts of things. At least many, many are. And Jesus would say to those who struggle with this temptation and who cannot seem to resist it, and let's face it, pornography these days, it's only a click or two of the mouse away. And some people feel that they are so trapped by this that they cannot be free of it. Do you know what Jesus would say? Jesus would say, this is a serious issue. It has eternal consequences. And if, internet, if access to the internet is what's causing you to sin, cut it off. Tear up that contract with your internet provider and have no access to it anymore. If your computer or your tablet or your smartphone is what's causing you to sin, cut it off. You might say to me, but Michael, I need access to email. Really? Do you really need it that much? If this is the source of your sin, you would be better off to go through life without access to the internet. You'd be better off to go through life without having a smartphone than to have these things and go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Right? This is the way Jesus is wanting us to apply this, this thing about cutting off body parts. It's what is causing you to sin. You'd be better off to cut it off. So what's the source of temptation that you need to cut off? Is greed your temptation? Maybe you have a love for money. Well, just give it all away. If you're having trouble serving two masters, give one of your masters away and you won't have that trouble anymore. If materialism is your temptation, you're always tempted to keep spending money on stuff you don't need. And every time the latest catalogue comes out, you, you open it up and read, ooh, that's on special. Ooh, I've got to have one of those. Or maybe the next thing you need to buy is a shredder. As soon as that catalogue turns up in your mailbox, don't open it, just drop it straight on into the shredder. And that might be the last purchase that you ever really need to make. For me, it's years ago now, 
But I had to give up the dream of having a farm. It was something that I felt I was born to. It's something I felt I was raised to. It was certainly something I was educated to and trained for. And it was my heart's desire. It was something I eagerly desired. It was something that would consume me. Um, I'd come to the point where, okay, I've got to make this plan. I've got to follow this plan to achieve my goal of getting back onto the land. But you know what? God had other plans for me. And God was leading me into the ministry. And so I actually had to cut off that dream. And it was very much a part of who I was. And for me to come to the realisation that I was never going to be on the land again, that was, that was an enormous thing. And unless I actually made that, unless I actually chopped it off at that point, I knew that this would be tearing me away from God's plan for the rest of my life. Maybe your temptation is telling rude jokes. What is it that causes you to do that? Is it when you've had a few drinks? Well, stop drinking. Is it when you're striving to be liked or, or you want to be noticed in a group of people? You want to be the clown? Well, stop seeing your identity as somebody who needs to be noticed. Stop seeing your identity as somebody who needs to be liked by others. And remember your identity as Jesus Christ. Cut off that desire to be liked. Maybe you have a problem with anger. What is it that makes you angry? What is it that stops you from keeping you cool? Is it when you're managing staff? Is that when you tend to get angry? Well, maybe you have to face the fact that you can't be a boss or you can't be a manager. Stand down from that position. Is it because you're not coping with debt that you get angry? Or maybe you need to sell up everything you have, sell up your assets, pay off your debt, and just get a low-stress job. Is it anger with your, with your spouse or your family that's your trouble? Or maybe you need to give up pride and actually get a bit of help. As a pastor of a church, um, sadly, I'm very aware of, of how common it is to hear of other pastors in various places who have committed adultery with a woman in their church. Now to guard against this, Robin and I agreed right from the start we needed to cut off any possibility of temptation and any possibility of an accusation. So right from the beginning of my ministry, if I needed to visit a young woman, we agreed that I would either take Robin with me or I'd take another older trusted woman from the church with me, or I'd stay out on the front steps while we talked, or we'd go, go to a picnic table down on the riverbank or something to have our, have, our, have our yarn. Before the temptation even got a chance, or before an accusation even had a chance, we decided we would cut off any possibility of it. What? is the source of your greatest temptations that you need to cut off. One commentary I read said this. 
the metaphor of amputation could hardly be more shocking. This is a matter of ultimate seriousness. Nothing less than eternal life or death is at stake. Christians who disparage hellfire preaching must face the awkward fact that Mark's Jesus and still more Matthew's and Luke's envisaged an ultimate separation between life and Gehenna, that's hell, which demanded the most drastic renunciation in order to avoid the unquenchable fire and that he did not regard even his disciples as immune from the need to examine themselves and take appropriate action. All right, are you getting this? Jesus is using hyperbole to highlight the seriousness of sin and the drastic steps that we should go to to guard against it. As disciples of Jesus, as his ambassadors in this world, the way we live matters. Jesus didn't save us from sin so that we could go back and wallow in it again. He lifts us up out of the quagmire of sin to become his pure, holy bride. Now, at this point, Jesus says three things about salt. In verse 49, he says, for everyone will be salted with fire. That, that, that's a strange saying. And I've got a confession to make. I cannot with complete confidence tell you what Jesus meant by that. But I can offer a bit of insight. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the people of Israel were told that they were to season their offerings with salt. They were told to add salt to all of their offerings. And now, in verse 49, we have this image of salt with fire. And I can't help but tie this image of salt with fire to the, to the sacrificial offering. Right? Salt is a seasoning. Christians being salt in the world is one of the images that Jesus uses. We are seasoning in the world. The world without Christians, not so nice. The world with Christians, we are the seasoning. But what's it mean to be salted with fire? I think Jesus is talking about a time of testing. Christians are the seasoning in the world. They're the taste of God in the world, but those very same Christians will be tested. I think he's talking about the personal sacrifice that it is to be a disciple of Jesus in the world. You see, the time that we spend on earth, it's not all beer and skittles. It's a time of testing. Now, I've said this a number of times. Jesus never promised us a bed of roses, but he definitely did promise us a cross of nails. And the early church knew all about the persecutions that Christians went through. They were living it. And in some countries of the world, they know all about it too. They're living it. This very day, Christians will be jailed for their faith. In some places, Christians will be killed today 
because they believe in Jesus. I heard some statistics the other day that Christians are the most persecuted religion in the world. In our own country, Christians are beginning to be persecuted for publicly speaking out um, in their faith. Persecution is a normal part of following Jesus. Does that mean that we should give up being salt? Never. Never. Jesus goes on to say, salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Now, scientifically, that's a nonsense. How, how can salt lose its saltiness? Well, it actually can't. I think that's the whole point. Salt is always salty. And I can speak with a lot of authority here. There's lots of topics that I don't know about much about, but salt, I'm an expert, right? Um, I'm quite the connoisseur of salt. If I was given a dollar, every time somebody said to me, oh, you like to have a bit of dinner with your salt, or oh, you like to have a bit of steak with your salt, oh, you like to have an egg with your salt, oh, you like to have a chop with your salt, you'd think that it was a brand new joke, right? But just, you get the point, you just... Add whatever food stuff you like there, except for Vegemite. I don't put salt on Vegemite. Now, for us Australians, we understand that very well because Vegemite doesn't need salt. Vegemite is the perfect flavour just as it is because it's got lots of salt in it already. Right? But if I was given a dollar every time somebody said something disparaging about the amount of salt that I tend to eat, I would be a wealthy man. No, I wouldn't. That's hyperbole. But... I would have enough to keep me in salt. I'd be enough, have enough money to buy enough salt to eat. But a few times, I've gone to visit some friends of various, in various places, and it comes to dinner time, and you sit down, and you notice there's no salt on the table. And by the way, I actually carry a thing of salt in my glove box just in case I ever get totally stuck and we find myself somewhere where there is no salt, because there's nothing worse. But, but I say, oh, excuse me, do you have any salt? Oh, yes, of course. And they go to the cupboard and they come back with this tiny little container. I'm thinking, that doesn't look like salt. And they say, now, salt's not good for you, but, but this, this is salt. It's a salt substitute. There's no sodium chloride in it, and, and, but it tastes exactly the same. They lie. It tastes nothing like salt. Now, it actually may be a salt, because um, I'm thinking back to early high school chemistry, I think a salt is when you mix an acid and a base together, the something that forms is a salt. Is that right? Who, who knows chemistry? I th think I saw somebody nod their head. No? Something along that line. So there's all sorts of salt, and that may have been a salt of some kind, but it wasn't good old sodium chloride, which we know as salt. It was being marketed as a replacement for salt. But it's not salt. How could I tell? The taste wasn't right. There's something different. And Jesus said, salt is good. But if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you ever make it salty again? Well, you can't. Salt is known by its taste. The disciples of Jesus are known 
by being disciples of Jesus, right? That they're known by their taste. What are we like? We're following Jesus. So disciples of Jesus, people who claim to be disciples without the characteristics of disciples are as false as unsalty salt. And in the context of what Jesus is talking about here, disciples of Jesus will live by his ways of righteousness. They will understand that sin is so serious that they will do anything that they can to cut off temptation. At another time, Jesus said, by their fruit you'll know them. Same thing. Same thing. If I claim to be a disciple of Jesus, but I'm not following in the ways of Jesus, I'm unsalty salt. I'm as false a disciple as what unsalty salt is false. And so he says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You know, a lot of us, and I think it's part of our Western culture at the moment, it's, it's all about the individual. It's all about me. Um, my faith is a personal thing. Um, you, you believe what you believe, I'll believe what I'll believe. We, we tend to individualise it all. But, but when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus, it's never about me. It's all about Jesus. And it's about the disciples of Jesus together as his church with Jesus. Now, sadly, in our culture, the church has become almost a dirty word. People tend to think of the church as the worst of human corruption. And in some ways, that's a fair point. Do you know why the church has gotten that reputation? It's because it's been unsalty salt. Some salt mixed with a lot of not real salt at all. And it ends up a mess, an unholy mess. So there's a couple of ways that salt can seem to lose its saltiness. Dilution and contamination. It's both actually the same thing. It's not at all that, that salt loses its saltiness, it's that the salt is missing. Or the salt is mixed with something that contaminates it something that's not salt at all. Now, you can very quickly tell if you forgot to put the salt in the porridge, eh? It's this, ooh, horrible, tasteless stuff. The salt's missing. And what's an egg white taste like without salt on it? Ooh, awful. But with a bit of salt and maybe a bit of pepper, ooh, that's okay. So, Salt could be missing, or it can be contaminated. In my younger years, I used to supplement my low-paying station hand award wage by shooting roos and selling the skins. And so what I'd do is I'd, I'd take the skins to the old shearing shed, I'd lay down the skin flesh side up and sprinkle some salt on it. Then I'd put the next skin down and sprinkle some salt on it, and then the next skin and sprinkle some salt on that, and and leave it there to cure for a number of days. And then when I was going to be going to town, um, I'd lay down an old piece of tarp, 
and I'd pick up the top skin and I'd shake the excess salt out onto the tarp and roll up the skin. Then I'd pick up the next skin and shake the excess salt onto that tarp and roll up the skin and, and do that. You see, I was saving the salt so I could use it again on the next batch of skins. But after I'd used that salt three or four or five times, what do you think that salt ended up like? It was this sticky, gluggy, bloody, fatty mess, goo. It, it was no good for anything. It was just totally contaminated. There was no sprinkling because it would just stay in a blob. Now, as Christians, if we stop living by kingdom principles, and if we start living a worldly life, we get contaminated and we lose that saltiness. Right, that salt was still there, but what was it doing? It was pulling in all of the gunk and stuff that, it, that, that the world was surrounding it, right? And becoming something other than salt. A disciple of Jesus who doesn't live by kingdom principles and who takes on the attitudes of the world becomes less salt, becomes less a disciple of Jesus and more a person of the world. This is about striving to live by kingdom principles. We mightn't always achieve it, but disciples of Jesus always strive to honour Jesus. Not that we're saved by, by living by kingdom principles, but because we're saved, we live by kingdom principles. Jesus said, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Right? This isn't just an individual thing. We can't just be part of a church and have the attitude, well, you believe what you want to believe and I'll believe what I want to believe and we'll just go about our own separate ways and we'll agree to disagree but we'll keep loving each other. It just ends up an unholy mess. When a Christian church is all on the same page, there's peace in that church. But when the world creeps into the church, when the salt is missing, or when it's diluted, or when the salt is contaminated, the church becomes an ugly, horrible mess. And there is no peace. Some people want to know, why do I have to live up to your ideals to be part of the church? Well, the answer is you don't. You don't have to live up to anybody's ideals to be part of the church. We just have to be salt. We have to be true disciples of Jesus who are following Jesus. So much in love with Jesus that we want to honour him with every fibre of our being. Now, the cost of that can be astronomical. You understand this, don't you? The cost of, of honouring Jesus with every fibre of our being can be astronomical. The things that we have to cut off, uh, the things that we used to see as important that we now have to give up. Jesus at times told us that it's the sort of thing that could put me at odds with my own family. Loving Jesus so much that we'd cut off anything that hinders us 
loving Jesus so much that we would take radical steps to remove whatever temptation it is that we personally struggle with. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. In the church, peace comes when together we are the salt that Jesus intends us to be. Peace in the name of Jesus Christ. Questions? Okay, so for those who didn't hear, what are the kingdom principles? Are they the Ten Commandments or, or what are they? I think um, in various places in the Bible um, they get bigger lists and smaller lists. Jesus actually boiled it down to do two. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul and all of your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. Um, that, he says that sums up all of the law and the prophets. Now, the, the trouble is, how do we interpret that then? Some people go, Jesus is telling us that all of the law and the prophets, that's revealing to us that this is a picture of, right, all of those other laws are a picture of loving God and loving others. But other people, but sometimes we get the idea, well, okay, as long as in my mind I'm loving God and loving others, I'll decide what's right and what's wrong. Um, whereas Jesus is telling us how to see these others' laws as loving God and loving others, we choose to make our own laws based on our concept of loving God and loving others. And we've got to be careful to guard against that. Um, but yeah, the Ten Commandments is a good place to start. But then, of course, we, we also see in the New Testament how Jesus um, can certainly, certainly compared to the the religious teaching of the day, Jesus reinterprets the law. He reinterprets it through grace. Um, right? So the classic one was when the woman of adultery was brought and Jesus says, well, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Um, but it was grace which required repentance. Um, but Jesus also did away with some other Religious laws, um, yeah, but certainly when it comes to moral law, Jesus never set any of that aside. In fact, Jesus made it tougher. Um, you know, if you'd use the, the adultery one, for instance, you, you said, you know, you've heard say do not commit adultery, um, whereas he says even if you look at another woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart, right? It's, it's a matter... He can, he can judge the heart. And it's not only just what we do, it's what's in our heart reveals where we are with God. And we can hide our actions. Some people are very disciplined and can hide their actions, but we can't hide our hearts from Jesus. And, and so part of this transformed life is not only trying to change our actions, it's recognising that darkness inside of us. And Well, Lord... I'm actually very patient on the outside, but I am filled with anger on the inside. God, can you help me deal with that? It's, um, it's, and we're not always going to achieve that, but it's recognising that this is sin living in me that God wants to deal with. We could go on for hours talking about this. Is that, is that enough to... Yep. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, 
We want to thank you um, for the great, enormous love that you've shown to us. That you would come to this world to live as one of us, that you would even give your own life upon the cross to save us and to, to restore us into relationship with you. Lord, what a privilege it is to be called as, as your disciples. And Lord, I know personally, I, I've, I, I so often look at the mess of a disciple that I am. And I'm, at times I'm anything but holy. At times I am the worst example of being a good disciple of Jesus. And Lord, we pray for forgiveness. But Lord, let us never give up. Let us never capitulate to, the, to, to sin. Because we have trouble struggling against it, let us never capitulate to it and, <laughs> and, and accept it as something we have to live with. Lord, we know that living as your disciples is about loving you so much that we would honour you with every fibre of our being. And Lord, help us to give you true honour. Don't, we don't want to be people who decide for ourselves what is honouring towards you. Lord, let us just come to you with who you are. And we bring all of our faults and all of our failures and all of our stumblings and even those sins that we've done on purpose. And Lord, we ask that you'd please help us with this. Lord, make us into the kinds of disciples who, who are truly salt. Lord, help us to be people who are a good flavour in the world. Lord, we know sometimes this is going to put us at odds with the world. Sometimes this will even put us at odds with our own family. Sometimes this will, and in some countries it will even put us at odds with the, the law. But Lord, help us to never count this cost. Help us to just want to seek to honour you with every fibre of our being regardless of the cost. And may we truly be salt in the world. In Jesus' name. Amen.